Hey there, oddballs. On this episode, we've got the story of the sleepwalking killer. You think you're in a deep sleep. Also, we have very eerie sounds of a black hole. I can't wait to let you guys hear that. Also, dude, this whole this whole social network thing of vampire lifestyles is called the Sabretooth Clan. It totally sucks. <laughs> All the stories and so much more. If it's odd to you, friend, it's on the odd to Newfoundland. It's the odd, odd, odd to Newfoundland. Ghostly greetings from your host, Jonathan. Mysteries, ghosts, monsters, and lore. East Coast esoterica and so much more. If it's up to your friend, it's on the up to your farm line. <laughs> greetings from the oldest city in North America. I'm your host, John Mallard, bringing you the best in East Coast esoterica. You, my friends, have stumbled upon the Odd the Newfoundland Paranormal Podcast. Welcome to episode 203, Way to Be, of your favorite paranormal variety show. And having your hair is better than the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, that's right. Kids are going back to school, baby. <laughs> Why? Because you're wonderful. A masterpiece. Beautifully made. Important to people because you're important to me. Highly favored by your creator. Or the law of averages and physics working in tandem. You, my friend, are an oddball. And on this show, your family, and we are one. Do you hear that noise? Do you hear it? That Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be honest, man. I almost thought I was going to get an episode out because for the last four days, unbeknownst to me, people have been outside jackhammering, like Goldberg style, jackhammering the freaking sidewalk. Like, what the heck? I'm trying to parallel podcast, man. I hope this isn't going to be picked up on my mic. But let's be honest, I do have a blue Yeti. This thing can probably pick up a fart on Mars. So I'm pretty sure you might hear a few in the background. And if you do hear that, first and foremost, I'm so sorry. You want to hear my annoying voice, not that annoying thing outside. Also, just a tip between me and you, if you are hearing it a lot, I really did try to fix it in post. So you don't have to let me know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious, we gotta catch up a little bit. Guys, hottest summer in history in Newfoundland. We just had a record-setting August, and this whole global warming thing is great for some people. Like, I know a lot of Newfoundlanders are loving the fact that it's 27 degrees Celsius outside. Me, I hate it. I hate the heat. I am an air-conditioning kind of guy. I'm very happy at about 20, 22 degrees. That's where I am uh, most happy. Uh, most people here in Newfoundland have not been complaining, but I will be the first to soak and wine over this. And it's also a little bit concerning because, like, we're seeing an average increase every three to four years of at least a degree or two. And this is this is really fast, maybe a little faster than what I admit. Let's hope this global warming thing, you know, kind of carries on and maybe just kind of stops at this point. But uh, I don't know, man. Maybe the damage has already been done, so to speak. All I know is that here in Newfoundland, we're all frying like eggs. And uh, we're kind of loving it. It's been a beautiful summer thus far. I can't believe it's September 1st. My little girl's going to grade 7. And my little son, he's now in grade 1. Wow. Like, where has the time gone? 
I know there's a lot of people out there who will be crying their eyes out very, very soon as their little ones go off to school. And just a quick reminder to you guys, when you're driving at night listening to this podcast, you know, the kids are still out right now. They really are. School doesn't start until the middle of next week. So keep your eyes open. Be careful what you're doing. And uh, let's all have a very safe and happy September. There's a lot of paranormal news stories to get to. Before I jump in on that, though, I just want to thank all of our subscribers. Remember, folks, if you want to support this show, check out Buy Me a Coffee slash Odd to Newfoundland Paranormal Podcast. It, it, it's right down in the show notes, O-T-N-P-P. It's right there. Click on there. You can support the show for as little as $5. Thanks so much to the people who have been supporting all along. And, of course, the people who are subscribing, man, thank you so much. Like, follow, subscribe, wherever you're to. Don't forget that if you follow me, if you subscribe to me, it'll make this show more visible to other people. That's what it's all about. Uh, our sponsor, of course, is still Accusana, still going strong. They continue to save my bacon. And I just want to say another quick thank you to you. As today is actually our third year anniversary. That's right, September 1st, all the way back in 2019, they started sponsoring the show. So uh, thank you so much, Akisanis, uh, for continuing to support our show and give me the software I need to get the sound of that stupid jackhammer in the background out for all my listeners. <laughs> uh, who loves you? Johnny loves you. But guess what? It's time for the paranormal news. <laughs> Somewhere between the funnies <laughs> and, and the obituaries is... Oh, oh, yes. The paranormal news. <laughs> Why talk about one weird monster when you can talk about six? The legendary sea monsters are lying away around the world as we all go for our final dips of the summer, so to speak. And these terrifying mythical sea monsters might make you think twice about taking a little dive into those waters, so to speak. That's right. You know to watch out for Nessie and the Kraken. I mean, that's just common knowledge. But did you know that there's a different watery ghoul waiting for you on every inhabited continent? Next time you're splashing around the beach, people, be sure to keep an eye out for these legendary sea monsters. First, let's go to Asia, because you know we love the globetrot. These restless spirits of the drowned are said to haunt bodies of water, large and small. And they're called the Mu Guishin. Hmm. <laughs> Some even say they haunt bathtubs. Native to Korea, these lonely ghosts want to use their extra long arms to drag you under the water so they can keep you company. Well, Wishwin are hard to spot. You might only see a head poking out of water or an arm reaching out from the depths. If you're swimming in the Han River or off one of the Deju's beautiful beaches and feel a little tug, oh boy, you might have fallen into the clutches of one of these water ghosts. Is it possible that cryptids are actually dinosaurs? Man, I've seen so many cool things about the Mokula Mimbi. This just just amazing cryptid is something I've actually covered on the show before, but what can I say? We're going for a little trip to Africa, to the Congo. That river basin, the Mokla Mimbi, he's there waiting for you, folks. But you only see this dinosaur-like creature if it wants to be seen. More than 50 teams of cryptozoologists have actually tried and failed to spot this monster, and it's rumored to inhabit the enormous Laculia Swamp Forest and Lake Tele. Now, of course, the indigenous people living in the area believe they have a spiritual connection to this water monster, and the tribal descriptions of Mokla Mimbi have been recorded, get this, as far back as 1916. That's uh, pretty, pretty incredible. And there have been repeated claims of sightings since then as well. <laughs> 
But don't worry, you don't have to be so south. You can go a little north as well. How about North America's Mishashipu? The underwater panther isn't exactly a panther. In fact, Mishashipu translates to from Ojibwe as the Great Lynx. Its nickname is the underwater panther because that's how European settlers translated it. The Ojibwe Cree and others say the Mishipu is a large furry beast like a cat with a long serpent tail, spikes on its back everywhere, and antlers like a deer. Be on the lookout if you're swimming in the Great Lakes area. It likes to drown people. Big surprise. Who don't show it and its domain the proper respect? Don't you be leaving those white claw cans on the beach, folks. It's said that this bizarre looking creature is the cause of the big storms on Lake Superior, by the way. Oh, boy. Okay, how about the grindy low in Europe? Kids in Yorkshire, Lancashire, and the UK know better than to get too close to the water's edge. Their parents have warned them about the Grindelow. The Grindelow is a green or brown creature with a tentacle bottom half and a humanoid torso. It has long, sinewy arms and hands with sharp, pointy fingernails. Its long, ropey arms will reach up in the deep and snag on weary children. Such a fine creature and so much fun to swim with. These unfortunate kids are destined to be slowly drowned and then gobbled down with the Grindelow's razor-sharp teeth. <laughs> what? I like a sea monster, okay? <laughs> okay, fine, fine. We'll go South America, okay? The Yokomama. Your mama, Yokomama. The Yokomama, or your mama. You know what? For now, I'm calling it the your mama. The Yokomama, a Quechua word meaning water mother. Oh, my God. Your water mother is an inhabitant of the Amazon River. She's an enormous serpent, some 100 feet, 30 meters long, with a 6 foot 2 meter wide head. Oh, delightful. He can eat me in one bite. Yakumama is fiercely protected of the waters of the Amazon. Save your drama for your Yakumama. She appears when it rains to tip over the boats of many fishermen. And she thinks that are exploiting the Amazon River's resources. She's going to do this to you as well. These unlucky fishermen are never to be seen again. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. All right, all right. One last little, you know, cryptid. Got to do it. Australia, bunyip. Stay the heck away from it. The little transition of the Aboriginal word bunyip is spirit or devil. This demonic creature has many appearances. Sometimes it has a horse's tail, flippers, and walrus tusks. Other times... It's said to be more like a seal, with feathers and legs instead of flippers. Some stories say that the bunyip has a single horn, like a unicorn. If you're in Australia, be alert for its telltale roaring. Bunyip lurk around Australian bodies of water, waiting to catch humans for a quick snack when their usual food is low. Mmm, delicious. So at the beginning of this show, I kind of, well, kind of mentioned how hot it is in Newfoundland and how concerned I am actually about global warming, like we all should be. And no joke, there's actually been some researchers out there for many, many years who've been talking about things getting gradually warmer. But like, at what point will it be too warm for us to live here anymore? I mean, I'm soaking about being in 27 degrees, but realistically, it's only going to get hotter. Well, researchers think by 2100, the earth will become so hot that it'll be dangerous to be outside. By the end of the century, extremely dangerous heat stress will become commonplace for billions of people living in different parts of the globe. According to the physics.org portal, researchers from Harvard and Washington universities came to this conclusion. By 2100, there will be many places on Earth where being outdoors will be dangerous to health and life. As the lead author of the study, Lucas Vargas Zapatello said, deadly heat will become commonplace in Europe and North America. Residents of countries closer to the equator will not be able to be outdoors for any long time during the six warmest months of the year. 
Such a warming scenario is highly likely to become a reality, even if humanity begins to significantly reduce those greenhouse emissions. We've been doing that for years already. In the new study, scientists analyzed the combination of air temperature and humidity, the so-called heat index, created to assess the effect of heat on the human body. Now, the index of quote-unquote dangerous heat, according to the U.S. National Weather Service, is 39.4 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's way hotter than what it is here in Newfoundland. I mean, it's been about 27, 28 every day here. Like another 10 degrees, I'll die for sure. An extremely dangerous indicator is 51 degrees. Like, you'll be dead within an hour outside in that desert heat. Scientists have concluded that even if the goals of the Paris Agreement are met, 2100, you know, like, we meet by 2100, dangerous heat will be recorded in Western Europe, Japan, China, and the United States three to ten times more often than today. In the tropics, the number of record hot days will double. That is, dangerous heat will continue there for half the months of the year. Oh, boy, that's not much to look forward to, folks. I better get used to this hot weather. Maybe I should have been out more this summer for sure. <laughs> and, like, you think about the effect this will have, not just on us, but on other animals and species, especially freshwater. Like, oh, my God, like, there's animals out there who live in puddles that form once a year <laughs> and they breed in them. Like, obviously, that's going to be dried up and gone. Oh, my. Scientists plan to resurrect the extinct Tasmanian tiger. Hopefully, we can get these guys back before everything burns to hell. Nearly 100 years after it was declared extinct, scientists are aiming to bring the Tasmanian tiger back to life. The tiger, also known as thylacine. I love that word, man. Thylacine. I have strong thighs, thylacine. We brought back using advanced genetics, ancient DNA retrieval, and artificial reproduction. <laughs> we would strongly advocate that first and foremost, we need to protect our biodiversity from further extinctions. But unfortunately, we are not seeing a slowing down in species loss, said the head of the head of the thylacine integrated genetic restoration research lab at the University of Melbourne, Andrew Pask. Yeah, that was a mouthful. This university offers a chance to correct this and could be applied in exceptional circumstances where cornerstone species have been lost. Hmm. Wait now. What about the dodo? Could they bring that back? Pask added introducing the animal back in the environment will be a careful procedure, of course. Any release such as this requires studying the animal and its interaction in the ecosystem over many seasons and in large areas of enclosed land before you would consider a complete rewilding, which means you basically got to make it so that it can survive on its own. That's not going to be easy, you know, considering we haven't seen its behavior in 100 years. Despite its name, the Tasmanian tiger was actually a marsupial. It lived solely on Australia island of Tasmania and was hunted to extinction by early European settlers because if watching the movie Pocahontas has taught us anything, is that settlers are bad and gay. Last known Tasmanian tiger died while in captivity back in 1936. And, you know, I, I can't really say I'm surprised at all. <laughs> Truthfully, I really can't. Okay, okay. I'm going to see if I can find something for you guys here now. i got to play something for you. Just hang on one second. hear that? How creepy that is? Like, listen to that. It sounds like something in the background of an old, like, Nintendo game or something. This sounds like Earthbound to me. Like, do you think that's creepy? I think that's super creepy. Do you know what that is? That's the sound of a freaking black hole. That's right. Like, I didn't think things in space even made sound. 
In the vacuum in space, you can't hear much, but NASA recently revealed black holes emitted noises that sound like ghostly alien moans and wails. In a post on Monday, NASA's Twitter account for his exoplanet program shared an audio clip of spooky sounds that came from waves of pressure rippling from a black hole through a cluster of galaxies. When you listen to the clip below, the airy sounds NASA captured from black hole pressure traveling through the Perseus galaxy cluster. That's what you just heard. Like, what? Wait now, this changes everything. So you can hear stuff in space. It's just the catalyst isn't there. Good Lord. The misconception that there's no sound in space originates because most space is a vacuum, providing no way for sound to travel. A galaxy cluster has so much gas that we've picked up the actual sound. There you go. So there's the catalyst. Instead of, well, wait now, oxygen is our catalyst for the most part. I guess that gas is a good enough catalyst. The actual sounds, however, are out of the human hearing range at 57 octaves below normal hearing. So the observatory captured the data from the ripples in the Perseus visible to X-ray, which corresponded to inaudible sounds. Then NASA, then NASA scaled the sounds up from their true pitch to something you can actually hear, raising them 144 quadrillion to 288 quadrillion times their original frequencies. Holy shnikes, that is really, really loud compared to what it was, and we can barely make it out. So, huh, there you have it. Another scientific thing completely debunked by our recent technology. Man, we have gotten so cool. Like, honestly, we've got to be, like, the coolest people ever to have this James Webb telescope up there sending back images of a world and just breaking the laws of physics all the time. You guys really should check it out. Right now, there's nothing more paranormal than science. You really got to check that out. Hey, man, let's go for a walk. How about a sleepwalk? What do you mean you want to kill some people along the way? Well, in May 1987, sometime after 2 o'clock on Sunday night, 23-year-old Kenneth James Parks left his home in the suburbs of Toronto, started the car, and covered 14 miles to the house of his wife's parents. It's quite the drive. He got out of the car, took a tire iron out of the trunk, and opened the door with the key given to him. Once inside, he strangled his father-in-law, Dennis Woods, and beat his mother-in-law, Barbara Ann Woods, before stabbing the woman to death with her own kitchen knife. Parks go back in the car. Parks got back in the car, drove to the nearest police station and stated, I think I killed someone. At this time, the young man was sleeping and therefore could not be held responsible for his actions. During the trial held in 1988, the jury reached just such a decision after nine hours of deliberation. The prosecution considered this ridiculous and appealed the outcome of the case. But in 1992, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the original decision. Even the sleep specialist who was brought in as a consultant was initially skeptical about such a case. I mean, this guy shows up with a tire iron, murders the people he loves, and his excuse is, oh, sleepwalking? Like, this sounds really, really fishy. Because the person who performed the whole series of rather complex actions such as this while sleepwalking is not common. Imagine passing these traffic lights without incident, passing a stretch of freeway, etc., it's gotten quite difficult to really believe. Most people end up hurting themselves or those sleeping next to them, not people tens of miles away. However, upon closer inspection, it turned out that the man really was asleep. According to the readings of the laboratory instruments, Parks was characterized by an unusually deep sleep. Even as a child, he often talked in his sleep, sometimes walked, and until the age of 11 to 12, he constantly woke up and went to bed. Now, one night, one of Parker's brothers grabbed him by the leg at the last moment as he was about to exit through the window. 
Similar symptoms occurred in his relatives in three generations. So this has gotten really, really interesting. So apparently this is a genetic thing where people, they're such a deep sleep that they'll commit murder and stuff. But now wait now, some part of you still has to be guilty, right? True, some details from the life of Parks did not put him in the best light. Almost a year before the attack, he became addicted to gambling, which did not reflect well on his marriage. He ended up stealing $30,000 from his job to cover his debts. Two months before the attack, the wrongdoing came to light and Parks was fired. Man, oh man, this guy had a horrible life. Three days before the attack, he attended a Gamblers Anonymous meeting for the first time and decided to make amends with his wife's parents, with whom he was apparently quite close. Parks even lost sleep because he was preparing for the upcoming conversation. Oh, no. Now, in a small number of people, the synchronization of the process of falling asleep between different parts of the brain is so disrupted that there's, you know, a complete disorganization. People can talk, walk, drive a car, and even cook food without understanding what is happening. Apparently, Parks went to his wife's parents because the part of the brain that planned his trip was not sleeping. Why do you attack? Even the prosecutor's office cannot answer this question. There was no benefit to Parks from this. According to experts at that moment, it did not seem to the poor fellow that he was killing someone in his sleep. The kind of sleep that Parks suffered happens during a certain stage of sleep when dreams are rare and mostly consists of fragmented images. Oh my God, man, that is absolutely chilling. Can you imagine that? You could be asleep right now, like not really wake up, but kind of wake up, jump in your car and drive. That alone is terrifying. I mean, Think of the people you could injure or kill. This guy hunted down people he actually loved, people he was trying to make amends with. Oh, man. And pretty much just turned them all into ghosts. Horrible, horrible, horrible story. And a really, really odd story indeed. Look, I know it's a little early to be talking about Christmas. If anything, we should be talking about Halloween. But Charles Dickens, I mean, I always think of Scrooge. I always think of A Christmas Carol and I think of Dickens. But he was a fascinated skeptic of the supernatural, to be honest. Now, there's actually a really interesting exhibition, okay, that explores the writer's enduring interest in ghosts and other paranormal phenomena. And this was really, really wild. I seen this story and I really, really felt like it was time to kind of bring this to light. Charles Dickens, Dickens was a master of the spooky story more than 150 years after the famed author's death. His tales of phantoms, goblins, and ghosts of Christmas past continue to frighten and delight readers around the world. But Dickens' fascination with spirits and specters transcended the pages of his fiction. And I've got to admit that, absolutely. Upon reading them, he, he was talking about different types of apparitions. Every single ghost in that Christmas special, dude, that was like, like bang on for different like interpretations of death from different cultures and stuff. It was really wild. I could tell he did his homework. Dickens' fascination with spirits and specters transcended those pages. Amid the spiritualist craze that gripped Victorian society, he sought out haunted houses and attended seances, even as he coughed and scoffed at the idea that ghosts could possibly exist. <laughs> the author's multifaceted relationship with the supernatural is the focus of an upcoming exhibition at the Charles Dickens Museum. Opening this fall to be read at dusk, Dickens' Ghosts and the Supernatural explores Dickens' lasting influence on the ghost story genre. He published more than 20 spooky tales in his lifetime and his dogged interest in the paranormal. Among its terms and on display are original sketches of Dickens' ghosts by the caricature John Leach, in addition to the chimes that was gifted to Hans Christian Andersen and tickets to Dickens' readings of his ghost stories. The author often performed his tales for family, friends, and even the public. His Christmas ghost stories were a particularly important part of his repertoire. 
and he rather enjoyed eliciting powerful reactions from his audiences. Because remember, back then, telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve was like a pastime, a part of the fun. One listener he bragged in a letter to his wife Catherine was, undisguisedly sobbing and crying on the sofa as I read. <laughs> like, I want to hang out with Charles Dickens now. <laughs> How cool is that? Now, according to the museum's website, Dickens was a fascinated skeptic, though, more interested in the psychological roots of paranormal occurrences than in finding proof of their actual existence. But many of his contemporaries did believe in the existence of a supernatural realm. Spiritualism, a religious and cultural movement rooted in the belief that the souls of the dead can communicate with the living, swept through America and Europe in the 19th century, counting many prominent figures among its adherents. Now, while Dickens attended multiple seances, he did remain unconvinced until his death. He wrote of one, the seer had a vision of stalks and leaves, a large species of fruit, somewhat resembling a pineapple, and a nebulous column, somewhat resembling the Milky Way, which nothing but spirits could account for, and from which nothing but soda water or time is likely to have recovered him. <laughs> the writer is also thought to have found, been the founder of London Ghost Club, which investigated supposed supernatural encounters. So, this is why I wanted to tell you the story. Charles Dickens was a freaking ghost hunter like me. How cool is that? Make no wonder me and my father watched that Christmas carol, the old one with Alistair Sim, every single Christmas. And I must admit, sometimes we even watch it during the year. <laughs> How cool is that? Oh my God, I love that story. It's so weird. <laughs> Who are you going to call? Charles Dickens. All right, all right. The world's largest social network of vampire lifestylers is next item up for bids. We're going inside the Sabretooth clan, and I promise you, this won't suck. There are people who believe they are vampires, and not just in a trendy pop culture way either. <laughs> I can just see them all lined up at Hot Topic now. These modern-day vampires have fangs, dress up in the clothes of a different era, and celebrate what they believe to be the philosophies of vampires. The largest collection of these vampires can be found in the members of the Sabretooth clan. Based in Los Angeles, I mean, it's not a coincidence. I mean, that's where Angel Investigations were, you know, you know, you know, Angel. Remember that show, Angel? No one? Angel Buffy? Oh, come on, man. You got to remember Angel. That show was amazing. It was so dark, but it was so amazing. Plus, you know, we had to have all the fun with uh, with Captain Forehead and Spike in the last season. Sabretooth Clan is a group of like-minded individuals that all have custom fangs made by the founder of their group. Father Sebastian. Members of the Sabretooth clan live among us, some only letting their fing-flang fly at choice events, while others are easier to spot. The Sabretooth clan lifestyle may not be for everyone, but if you're interested, they're always looking for fresh blood. Some modern vampires. That's right. Some of the more modern ones do drink blood. They get their blood from black swans, people who appreciate vampire culture but do not themselves identify as a vampire. The Sabretooth Clan do not partake in blood sipping like fellow vampires. Instead, Sabretooth Clan members prefer a popping custom fang, sport color contacts, wear clothes from another era, and live as children of the night. During the day, the clan members are just like any other person you'd like to see walking down the street. You know, they work in offices, they have kids, and lead relatively normal lives until the sun goes down. They have guardian spirits who act as their saints as well. Now, the clan has had a group of spirits they believe watch over them. One spirit, Fred Samdi, the host is the icon of the clan's Endless Night Vampire Ball, and similar to the voodoo spirit of Baron Sandy. When clan members come to the ball, they bring gifts to Fred Sandy as offerings. Kitra the Witch is described by group founder Father Sebastian as the sorcerers and vampire witch, as well as forceful and emotionally intense. 
Olorath the dragon can be called upon in rituals of power, and Maradu the knight is seen as a protector. So, how do they adhere to the philosophy and call themselves lifestylers? Well, according to Sebastian, members of the Sabretooth clan are vampires or lifestylers. This type of contemporary vampire can adhere to their chosen way of life part-time, choosing when and where they put their fangs and dress up. So there you go. These guys aren't exactly working in some law firm ever, and like, like law firm or they're like firemen. I can see it now. Oh my God, the building's on fire. Oh look, here comes the clan. And all these vampire guys come out and they're like <laughs> floating up to save people. I mean, come on. Oh, what an awesome bunch of heroes. No? Horrible? Okay, I'll clue this up. Lifestyles make up the vast majority of the modern vampire culture. Vampires do not partake in any type of role-playing style game. Instead, they adhere to a vampire philosophy connected to the familiar tropes of vampirism. Minus the whole, you know, drinking blood, of course, because age is real, and so are many, many other communicable diseases. <laughs> Anyhow, folks, this has been a real hoot. We've had so many cool stories tonight. We had a sleepwalking murderer. We had, you know, the world being too hot to live in by 2100. Sanchez resurrecting the Tasmanian tiger. The sound of a black hole. Oh, my God, that's so eerie, man. So, so eerie. Charles Dickens as a ghost hunter. Like, oh, my God. So cool. And, of course, we kind of hung out with, uh, you know, the wannabe vampire, so to speak, over at the Sabretooth clan. Guys, all these stories have been odd to Newfoundland.